Yeah. Any other announcements? There's a class coming up you probably know about if you've heard the Sangha, Pam Wise, starting uh, April 17th, which is coming up soon, six Tuesdays, called Taking Refuge in Buddha, Inspiration for Walking the Spiritual Path. The flyers are over there. It's in the evening, 7 to 9, right here at the church. Are there any other classes or anything else? Okay. I love coming here. <laughs> Everyone is so friendly and warm and welcoming, and I get to see old friends, and just really supportive, sweet Sangha. Um, I was originally born in San Francisco, never really lived here, lived in the East Bay mostly. Left for many years and came back in 2010. So I'm, I now live in Marin. And if you came in late, my name's Marlena DeCarian. Nice to meet you and be here. And been sitting with Eugene since about 2001, and uh, my community Dharma leader person from Spirit Rock, and just teach mostly around the Bay Area. So I uh, just sat a day long retreat myself, so I'm kind of in the zone. <laughs> and uh, my sister was there, she joined me here tonight, and we were driving over the bridge, and she said, why are you driving so slow? You could go. <laughs> in the fast lane, because we were kind of running a little bit behind, and I said, because I just got out of a meditation <laughs> retreat, and my mind is like, I don't know where my mind is, but it wasn't in <coughs> traffic freeway mode, right? So, um, so I think it's customary to chant the refuges with this community, is that right? Or say them together? There's somebody here that yeah, often chants them. Yeah, Barbara's not here. I know, Barbara's not here, so... Do, would you like to... I know, I'm going to do it, and you just have to be kind to me, because <laughs> I love chanting the refuges, but I'm talented in many ways, but, like, the whole vocal thing. So let's just do it, because it's good to do, and it feels good. And So um, how would I do a call and response? Namo tassa, Namo tassa. Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Namo tassa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Namo Tassa, Bhagavato Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Buddham Sadanam Gachami. Dhamam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyampi Buddham saranam gachami Dutiyampi 
Dhammam saranam gachami Dutyam bhi Sangam saranam gachami Tatyam bhi Buddham saranam gachami Tatyampi Dhammam saranam gachami Tatyampi Sangam saranam gachami Taking refuge in the Buddha, the one that's awakened within us or awakening itself or awakened consciousness, that which we are in the Dharma, the path, the teachings, the way, or consciousness revealing itself to itself through us, the Dharma, and the Sangha, our friends our community, or maybe our not friends that we practice with and become our teachers, our mirrors, our reflections. So the Sangha of the Holy Ones, the not feeling so Holy Ones, (laughs) that can become holy when we drop into the interwoven all-connectedness of the true heart. So I was getting slightly overwhelmed about giving a talk on the weekend that was that is Passover and Easter and the full moon <laughs> and the Hanuman ritual, Hanuman celebration, and whatever other things are happening this weekend, April Fools, spring. <laughs> There's probably a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game or something, right? There's so much sort of going on right now. Um, And yet I was also deeply inspired, sort of deeply inspired because I love ritual and ceremony and things that have us stop, have us pause, have us reflect on what matters, what's important to us, what we value, what we really care about, what our lineage is, what our traditions are, what our history is. So last night, because my mother's side is Jewish, I went to a Seder Passover dinner. Right? Today I would have gone to my Christian Easter father's house, but I went to a day-long retreat at Spirit Rock, so I did the Buddhist thing, which is to pause on the full moon. You know, Buddhist, a full moon's very important to the Buddhist tradition because the lunar cycle, right, sort of the, the ebbing and flowing of the seasons and of the of the monthly calendar and of the moon, but it's also the waxing and waning of all things. You know, the moon becomes full, and then of course it recedes, or at least the vision of it does. So many Buddhists take a pause on full moon. It's a day to relax. It's a day to reflect. It's
It's like a Sabbath. It's a day to take stock or to practice and put things down and be together. The Buddha was born on a full moon. I didn't really know until recently. And that he took renunciation on the full moon. He was enlightened on the full moon, and he passed away on the full moon. <laughs> so uh, the moon is still pretty full, so you know, don't lose faith. It could happen this weekend for you. Um, um, but really, it's a time, right, of heightened spiritual energy, people also might say, on the full moon. There's like this potent energy for awakening, realization. Um, but I was reflecting, I was reflecting on my journey the last 20 years, studying the Dharma, Buddha Dharma, having this Jewish history, having this Christian history. For many years we were actually Unitarian, so here I am, back in the roots of my childhood. I think my mom just couldn't decide, so she said, let's go be Unitarian, because then everything's welcome. Um, so I grew up in a very interfaith culture, like, it, it, you know, our minister at the Unitarian Church used to be Jewish, and I just, I, you know, was born in the Bay Area in the 70s, and so when I thought about this weekend, I thought, I just want to talk about everything, because it's all included, it's all part of, like, what's happening right now. Um, and I thought about what could be a possible theme, or what, what was striking me right now, what do I want to talk about, because of what's going on in our world as well, like what the times that we're in, you know. Um, and so what came to mind was to talk about resilience, to talk about what keeps us going, what has us be able to stay with our practice, stay open-hearted, stay somewhat wise, stay somewhat compassionate when times get really intense and really difficult. And I went to a, a retreat at Spirit Rock last month, a three-day retreat on resiliency and on post-traumatic growth. Right? So I thought, I want to talk about that. Right? And as I reflected, it was like, oh yeah, the Jews, you know, the Jewish heritage just came so clearly to mind how resilient the culture, the race, the tradition had to be because of so much the Holocaust and persecution and exile and the whole history of Judaism is based on, it's basically based on one catastrophe after another. One kind of, you know, retreat or one kind of escape or, I mean, it's just full of that. Um, and so my experience of the Jewish culture is that they've had to recover and revision and regenerate and recede their life over and over again. So there's like tremendous resiliency in that. Um, sort of a cycle of crisis and renewal, crisis and renewal, that gives birth to the strength and courage and capacity to keep going. Um, and then I was thinking about the Christian tradition and I was thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And like how astounding that is to have that be part of the history that he was persecuted and he was gone and it was this tragedy, but then out of the darkness came the light and he overcame death. 
and it was a symbol for overcoming of sins and forgiveness and vitality in life even when everything is lost there could be rebirth it's like wow I mean it's tremendous archetypal and you know sort of symbolism in 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 what's alive in our in these histories And I was reading a bit about it. There's a clergy woman, uh, I liked her passage. She's from Cambridge. Her name is Ucha Ikba. She's originally from Nigeria. And she was writing about Easter and what this is. And she was saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ simply means like that power that raised Jesus from the dead and destroyed the grave, so also for the believer, the same power sets the believer free to live a a new life that destroys sin in his or her life, a new life of victory over sin. And I was like, wow, it's like what we're always talking about in Buddhism. (laughs) It's exactly what we're always talking about. We're talking about liberation. We're talking about freedom. We're talking about overcoming of greed, hatred, and delusion. We're talking about the ability to see clearly in the midst of our ignorance and delusion, you know, we're talking about the light that is our bright, original consciousness that never dies, that is unable to be tarnished, no matter how bad things get, you know, that that's who we really are, that we can emerge. And she went on to say, there's nothing material that can, this is from a Christian perspective, there's nothing material that can satisfy the human soul. Not our material opulence or intellectual or political ingenuity or whatever exalts our ego. They give only temporary happiness. You can have all of these things and still have sin, secret or open, and it will destroy your life. I was like, okay right on, you know, that's very pointing, right, to the essence or the heart of what the possibility is, that we can have all these things and think that it's all going to make it better, but we can still be inside, right, toiling. And uh, this was from the Seder last night, I love this, this passage about um, liberation from the Jewish perspective, that um, liberation from captivity did not entirely set us free. So even though the Jews escaped and you know were free from slavery, um, did it not did not entirely set us free. We still twist in our inner prisons, struggling to deliver ourselves alone or together into freedom. So it's like everybody's up to the same thing. <laughs> It feels like everybody's trying to go to the same place. Um, and if I was more educated and you know, sort of more steeped, I would hopefully be able to talk about other traditions as well. These are just the two that are sort of alive and impacting in the moment, but there's so many others, right? It's not, they're just big ones, but there's others. So, you know... I think our, all of us want, right, whatever, whatever stream, right, all the streams are going to the same ocean in some way. 
if we get to the, the sort of true heart of it. So resiliency, dictionary definition, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape, elasticity. So this power to be able to return to original form after being bent, compressed, stretched, right? Anyone ever felt bent, compressed, or stretched? Or ever had a day where you didn't feel that? (laughs) Or even an hour, right? That's sort of constantly what's happening inside, constantly pressures from our own expectations and our own beliefs and the outside world and we're shaping ourselves and shifting ourselves and twisting ourselves. The ability to recover readily from illness, depression, adversity, or the like. Buoyancy. I love that word, buoyancy. The American Psychological Association says that resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, or workplace and financial stressors. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. I can't imagine there's anyone in here exempt from any of those, right? This is how we live. We live with unexpected things happening at work in our marriages, in our lives, in our health. And so it's this capacity um, to continue. Well, I'll say more. I'll just say that for now. Research has shown that resilience is ordinary, not extraordinary. That people commonly demonstrate resilience. It's actually not exceptional. It's the norm. Or we wouldn't be here. How would you be here if you didn't have resiliency? Just think back over all the things in your life that you have navigated, that you have figured out a way to reconfigure yourself from that stretch, from that bend, from that compression, to find some way back into whatever balance you could find. All the chosen and unchosen experiences I think we could each get up here and just, right, for days tell our stories. It'd be fascinating to hear the stories of each of you, what you've been through, how you've overcome, how you've done that. So being resilient does not mean that a person doesn't experience difficulty or distress, right? It means that that's actually what's going on. Um, And it's not a trait that people have or don't have. It involves behaviors, thoughts, and actions that can be learned and developed in anyone. Anyone can learn it. This is a poem from Mary Oliver called Lingering in Happiness. After rain, after many days without rain, it stays cool, private, and cleansed under the trees in the dampness there married now to gravity, falls branch to branch, leaf to leaf, down to the ground, where it will disappear, but not, of course, vanish except to our eyes. 
The roots of the oaks will have their share and the white threads of the grasses and the cushion of moss. A few drops, round as pearls, will enter the mole's tunnel. And soon, so many small stones, buried for a thousand years, will feel themselves being touched. And soon, so many small stones, buried for a thousand years, will feel themselves being touched. So if Buddhism isn't about being resilient, I don't know what it is. The Dharma isn't pointing us, right? Because each moment we get a chance to begin anew. Each moment if we really, really look and we're in that still, quiet, never-changing, loving awareness that's ever-present, that's ever-always-been-here, that never will not be here, that's unborn and won't die, and we touch into that, then right, we can have a moment where we're not run necessarily by our history. We can have a moment of being new, to be fresh, to be alive again, awake. We can be asleep for weeks, months, and we can wake up in a moment notice and right, can feel really different when we wake up. Pema Chojin says, only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible in us be found. Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible in us be found. pretty much what the practice does. It annihilates us, right? It annihilates our beliefs. It annihilates our right and wrong. It annihilates our ego consciousness about being the best or the worst. I mean, it just starts, you know, hammering at everything that we take ourselves to be to keep ourselves kind of in a defined state, right? It's just going to keep, it's going to keep disrupting. It's going to keep annihilating every moment until, right, there might be a glimmer, a glimmer of that, which is most true, which is the indestructible. You get a taste of that, and that's the taste of nourishment, of real food, of real liberation. I remember when Eugene first, I heard him first tell the story of Angulimala. Who knows the story of Angulimala? Raise your hand. Yeah, some of you. It's a great story. You know, Buddhism is so, the scriptures are so full of all these great stories, and it's all taught in parables, and how the you know, Buddha did this, and the Buddha did that. And, and so, um, you know, this, this other monk uh, was studying with this teacher, and the, the story goes that the other students were jealous of him, so they somehow tricked his teacher, they poisoned the teacher or something, to um, turn on the student. So the teacher told the student that um, in order to become awake, uh, enlightened, he had to go and collect a thousand pinky fingers from a thousand different people. Right? And you would think the monk would say, no way, I'm out of here, forget it. 
And he said, all right, I'll do it. And he went out and he started collecting all these fingers. But people weren't going to readily give their finger to him, so he had to kill them to get it. So he became this mass murderer, right? and he had 999 fingers. And he was on his last one. And Angulimala means, I think it means like little finger or something. And he had a necklace full of these little fingers. And he was like, all right, I'm going to go get my last one, and it's going to be the Buddha. He heard about the Buddha, and he's going to go get him. And um, so he's running after him. And, you know, the Buddha had all these superpowers. You know, he was a superpower guy. So Angulimala's coming, and he's like, I'm going to kill you. And the Buddha's just walking, like, super slow motion. And Angulimala's running, and the Buddha's, like, super slow. So he couldn't catch him. He was so frustrated. And he starts yelling. He's like, Buddha. Stop! You know, stop. And the Buddha stands there and turns around without any fear, any anger, just really quietly, directly, and he looks in a gulimala and just says, I have stopped. You know, now it's your turn to stop. And in that moment, Angulimala woke up. He was like, oh, he like got it, right? And it was the transmission. And so he became a monk in the Buddhist Sangha. And people were like, what? Mass murderer? He can't be part of the Sangha? Like, no, you know? And so the king, who was going to come and kill Angulimala, and all this stuff, the king's like, what are you doing, Buddha? You can't do this. And the Buddha's like, hey, man, you know, anybody can start. Anybody can have a moment. Like, it's not over, right? So anyway, there's this whole thing about the story of the king and the this and that, but the bottom line is, wow, right? Even a mass murder, that's the story, that's the that's the, the message, can begin again. That anyone can be realized, no matter how much greed, how much hatred, how much difficulty. This is from Hafiz, more of a Sufi tradition, because I'm having my interfaith weekend. Right? It's called The Sun in Drag. You are the sun in drag. You are God hiding from yourself. Remove all the mine that is the veil. Why ever worry about anything? Listen to what your friend Hafiz knows for certain. The appearance of this world is a brilliant trick, though its affairs are nothing into nothing. You are a divine elephant with amnesia, trying to live in an ant hole. Sweetheart, oh sweetheart, you are God in drag. The center for of developing, the center of the developing child. I think it's called. It's a research place um, out of Harvard. Has identified a common set of factors that predispose children 
to positive outcomes in the face of significant adversity. So they do studies on resilience. There's a lot of studies now, right? How do kids overcome you know, difficulty and trauma? And so there's the image of a seesaw where, depending on how much difficulty, right, there has to be a counterbalance for positivity. It just has to happen or it's just too much and the system can't become resilient. The system collapses or shuts down or gets super mm-hmm. aggressive. But if there's certain factors that can outweigh it, it could actually be a really difficult situation for a child and they can make it through. Mm-hmm. So some of those counter, counterbalancing um, factors include, as you might imagine, facilitating supportive adult-child relationships. Just like we need positive adult relationships, right? I don't think it stops at that. So when we're under stress, we need sangha, we need adult positivity, we need other people there to help us. Building a sense of self-efficacy and perceived control. So not feeling helpless, but feeling like I can do something about it. That's that mantra when you meditate. I can do it. I can do it. I can sit. I can influence my mind. I am not at the mercy. I do not have to be run by my habitual patterns. I can sit and in any moment I can take a breath. I can pause. I can learn how to relate to myself and to life in a different way. I'm not just subject. I'm not Angulimala, right? I can change. I can wake up. No matter how much I effed up. Right? I can stop. Right? And sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes the day's like, you just want to bury your head in the sand, right? Pull the covers over, like, I, did, I blew it so bad, or it's like we're tortured by whatever our mind is telling us. But there's always the potential to stop, to remember. So number three, providing opportunities to strengthen adaptive skills and self-regulatory capacities. My sister, who's here tonight, um, has been lit up lately uh, and inspiring me about the neuroscience of meditation because she's a scientist, so it totally makes sense, right, the science side. Um, But the neuroscience side, it's all about self-regulation, that the prefrontal cortex down-regulates the amygdala, which is the place where we feel flight, fright, or freeze, where we're in threat response. And that that's what meditation and mindfulness does. It syncs up or links up the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, and they talk to each other. Usually the amygdala fires and the prefrontal cortex goes offline. It's called an amygdala hijack. You know, you can't, you have no rational thought. You have no decision-making. You're just gone, and you say the thing you're not supposed to say to the person you love, and you do the thing on the freeway you're not supposed to do to other drivers, and you send the email you're not supposed to send, or whatever, right? And then you go, ah. So this ability to actually self-regulate is incredibly powerful for children to learn, but for us as adults to learn. It's kind of the make or break, right, to emotional intelligence, but to also being able to, like, sort of manage the intensity of our survival when it comes up. And the fourth one is to mobilize sources of faith, hope, and cultural traditions. That's part of the counterbalance, is that kids have some kind of sense of faith or hope, and they're part of something bigger, right? A cultural tradition, a heritage, 
a lineage, something that can carry them, something that matters, something that's meaningful. And that these uh, capabilities can be strengthened, obviously, at any age. At any age. Yeah, so this, you know, this person was, this article was just talking about Adults who strengthen these skills in themselves can better model healthy behaviors for their children, thereby improving resilience of the next generation. Right? So even if you don't have kids, even if you're not around kids, our practice is building a model, is, is building the, the fabric for the next generation, right? It's like our waking up matters in terms of how we ripple to the people in our neighborhood, the people at workplace, the people that we're, you know, that we're in contact with. Our own capacity for compassion and wisdom, right, makes a difference for those who we can counterbalance. I've seen this with my own family. I have nieces and nephews, and they have certain stressors and divorce and things happening. And I can show up with presence and curiosity and compassion and I can see how, like, little closed-up flowers, they start to open, right? They start to reveal their, their true nature, because it's like, wow, right? They have enough of that teeter-totter happening. So another term that uh, I'm really appreciating that you may have heard of, instead of post-traumatic stress, is post-traumatic growth, right? So this is taking resiliency to another level. It's not really about coming back into the shape or form that we were before we got stretched and stressed. It's actually about growing into even, even more evolved shape or form. So it's taking the stress, learning from it, integrating it, so that we can actually become a better, wiser, more loving person. That's post-nomadic growth. So there's growth that comes out of adversity. We're not just trying to get back to where we were five years ago. We're actually trying to get Right or allow something new to emerge, kind of new insight, new learning, new consciousness, rise to a higher level of functioning by using what's challenging. It's about undergoing significant life-changing psychological shifts in thinking and relating to the world that contribute to a personal process of change that is deeply meaningful. So it also gives us meaning. Rather than I just survived it and oh my gosh, I got through, there's like something that we can take forward that has meaning for us. So I think that's a um, pretty significant, I think, paradigm shift or, or possible perspective if the challenge is actually right, really growing me, then what's possible? If you think about something you are facing right now, and what could be on the other side is some sort of new growth. Hmm, you know, what's here then? According to this article I was reading, um, I won't cite all that, but it's from the University of Carolina at Charlotte. Um, as many as 90% of survivors report at least one aspect of post-traumatic growth, such as renewed appreciation for life. 
that's often what happens. It's like, wow, just the fact that I'm alive and I made it and I'm here. I mean, it's a miracle that we're all here sometimes, right? Just, just that we've made it given everything that's, you know, all the risks and all the possibilities. That we could thrive after something difficult. There's a um, Maya Angelou poem I want to read. Some of you might have heard the song too. Um, ben Harper has a great version of it. I've listened to it a million times. It's like the song I go to when I'm down in those places that you don't really want to go and you don't know if you're going to come out. And it's called I Rise. This is Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I'll walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awfully hard? Cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? <laughs> Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise up from a past that's rooted in pain. I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear. I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Feel emotional. Just because of what's happening on our planet, what's happening in our system in the world, what's happening in our country, what's happening to people of color. It's, it's painful to be alive right now, isn't it? It's not easy to see uh, the forces that are pushing against our capacity, right, to stay loving and open. It's like at the same time there's a merging of wisdom and collective love and togetherness. There's so much darkness right now, right? 
But this talk is about resiliency. <laughs> it's about rising. Because <laughs> we just do, right? We just keep doing it. We just do, right? we just get out of bed. How do we do that when it's like, when we look at the news these days, right? And we like, get out of the house sometimes. It's like, wow. So, um, oh boy. Behind. I don't think you can be behind the Dharma talk, but whatever. I'll hurry up and get to somewhere. Um, I wanted to read a little bit from Sean Bartone, who's Canadian, uh, a trans queer meditator, Buddhist meditator who writes about many things, and he writes about resilience, and he or she or they, I think. At this point, I'll say they because they're in a trans process, and I'm not sure where they might land. Um, but I really liked what they said about how they're moving from the practice of Buddhism as nirvana, right, which is this like we're going to get to this place and it's going to be all calm and cool and bliss, and we're going to be super loving and it's going to be fine, and what you know, it's going to be total cessation of any pain and. And they're like, yeah, kind of not going there and that, like putting my focus on that anymore. Um, so they're moving away from the practice of Buddhism as nirvana, as permanent and total release from suffering, and moving more to, this, to the practice of Buddhism as resilience. Right? Buddhism as resilience. The capacity to tolerate an inevitable amount of pain and suffering. Buddhism as resilience. Anybody sat a long retreat and you just sit for a day or two and right, there's a lot of pain usually. Things quiet down, the body aches, the mind goes in all directions. The capacity to mitigate suffering and its effects on our lives, resilience, mitigate suffering, decrease the amount of suffering. The capacity to use the experience of suffering to generate compassion for self and others. The capacity to transform suffering into psychic and spiritual growth, to wisdom, that's the post-traumatic growth. And the capacity to, to reduce the amount of pain and suffering the self in the world by creating more just and compassionate social processes, creating well-being and resilience for all. Right? So not just for ourselves, but for, for society as a whole. And they go on to say that they're really about the Eightfold Path, not just being a personal path, but the Eightfold Path to the well-being of society, or the Eightfold Path of a resilient society. The whole of the path being for the resilience of society. So, you know, ways to build emotional resilience. Keep practicing. I mean, meditation is one way, but there's so many other ways, too, right? It's our loving-kindness practice, it's our ability to sit, right, in the storm, it's our ability to be with other people, our interpersonal social contact, it's how we take care of ourselves. It's, uh, I went to a whole weekend retreat two weeks ago on balance, which was all about, like, are you getting enough sleep? Are you exercising? Are you eating okay? Are you? It's like a spiritual master, and all he talked about was like, how are you taking care of yourself? Right? Are you out of balance? Are you working too much? Have you had enough vacation? 
Like, how are you doing just in your life? Forget enlightenment. Just, are you balanced? We can get so out of balance so easily. Are you watching too much news? Are you not watching enough good TV? You know? He was like, I don't think anyone can get enlightened without watching good TV. (laughs) Are you having enough root beer floats? I was like, root beer floats? Who eats root beer floats anymore? But it's like, where, you know, where are you on this teeter-totter? You know, where are you in terms of, you know, having enough fun? You enjoying yourself? How's your sex life? You know, it's like, just in terms of, like, how we balance ourselves. How we laugh. You know? At the Seder dinner last night, we went around and shared our superpowers. The rabbi was like, share your superpower with the table. And it was so sweet, my mom said, her superpower is to be able to laugh in the middle of, like, shit going down, you know? And I was like, that's true, she does do that. It's like she does, she cracks a funny joke, she's hilarious. Didn't realize she did that. But that's like a sign of resilience, right? That's a way that we regulate, that's a way we discharge some of the stress and tension in order to get back into equilibrium, to get back into balance. Sometimes we need to alter our perception, alter our perspective. Sometimes we need to get away from the issue and get a bigger picture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe just close your eyes for a minute and just feel into... Just find a moment of balance right now, just in whatever words stuck with you or not, just nothing really to do, just find your own inner balance for a moment. I once heard a teacher say it actually only takes like um, half a second to come home to who you really are. Maybe just feel your seat your spine. Just feel your breath moving in and out. presented to you. The truth of who you are is goodness. No matter how many mistakes you've made, regrets you have, really in the true heart of existence is goodness. And that really You really do want to be happy, so anything you're doing that might be causing trouble for you is out of the true desire for balance, true desire for happiness. What we all really want. (laughs) So I'll just read a last poem as we close. 
It's just only breath. This is from Rumi. Not Christian or Jew or Muslim. Not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi or Zen. Not any religion or cultural system. I am not from the East or the West, not out of the ocean or up from the ground, nor natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. I do not exist, am not an entity in this world or in the next, did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is placeless, a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and now and know, first, last, outer, inner, only that breath breathing, human, being. First, last, outer, inner, only that breath, breathing, human being. few minutes for any questions or comments. You can just come up to the mic, say your name, please. If you don't come up, I'll just read more poetry. <laughs> Talk more about no hold. <laughs> startled when you were talking about how our practice kind of annihilate our mm. ego. It sounded so violent. Mm. And I've never thought of it that way. I thought 
more along the lines of it just lets us let go of the delusion mm. and find out that we're already here with the truth. Mm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Um, I agree. Right. Yeah. yeah. However, it however it is experienced in you, right? The letting go, the dissolution, the beauty of that, the love of that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. The heart that's revealed, right? That sees clearly, and the ego relaxes. It could be like more of a sense of relaxation. Some people call it. They call nirvana ego relaxation, right? The ego totally just. So yeah, the word annihilation is uh, can feel harsh, right? And it's also it also can be the experience where I think in in uh, more of like a ruthless compassion is where that comes from, right? Annihilates meaning cuts through, breaks down. You know, not in a way to harm, but in a way to, you know, allow what's true to emerge. no annihilating happening to anyone's ego. Don't worry, it's just all relaxation. It's all good. Yeah, that's beautiful what you're saying, right? Yeah. And the fact that it's actually a signal that you're listening to the signal, it's like, oh, wow, something else I could let go of. Some way that the nervous system is contracted, right, and creates some kind of contraction and gripping or holding, right, and some kind of clutching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That you're listening, right, with friendliness, clearly, yeah. right, a friendly relationship to that signal, which is, oh, I'm out of balance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. You don't have to stop saying anything. I know. Like, excite some conversation. It's all good. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, good. Thanks, Elise. sitting with Ajahn Amaro, who's a used to be in Northern California, but he's since moved out of the country. I think he's still out of the country, but um, at a retreat, and uh, you know, of everything he said in the hours of his talk, I remembered one thing, right? And he said, you know, once you're on the path for a while, 70% of the path is knowing that you're stuck and not being able to do anything about it. <laughs> you know, coming from a seasoned monk, I had a teacher was like, oh, God, but it's so true, right? It was so such a relief. You gotta annihilate that, <laughs> right? <laughs> we gotta annihilate that, right? And just get through that. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even knowing that we're in it, right, is is helpful, right? Than not being in it. It's like, yeah, even when we can't, it's like, and it's actually there's actually such potential when. You know, that I was sitting with, many of you sat with Tanisara, because she teaches here, right? Tanisara and Kitasara were teaching today at Spirit Rock. And one of the things she said that um, Ajahn Chah used to say, or no, was it Ajahn Buddha? I can't remember who she was quoting, but it's like, when you can't go up, and you can't go down, and you can't go back, and you can't go forward, you know, you can't, you can't go any direction, right? That's where the practice begins. That's a starting point. It's a place where we get to have a moment of possibility because right. we're not trying all our strategies, can't figure it out. Right? We have to go back into the nothing and the void and the helplessness and all the way down into the place where we can find our true self again because the mind can't control it. Right? And I was giving a talk at the at USF, um, University of San Francisco a couple weeks ago to some senior students who are in the Asian studies program and they're studying Buddhism and the professors had me come talk a couple times just to talk about practicing Buddhism in the West and um, and basically what I found myself telling these college students because you know many of them were so stressed out you know one of them came up to me in tears afterwards he doesn't sleep hasn't slept in years another one's like you know what because they're reading the news on their phone all the time and they're studying for exams and you know they're so young and cute, <laughs> their little nervous systems, you know, I wanted to take them all home with me, come <laughs> But um, they, um, I found myself just saying to them, like, you know, all the suffering that you're in, you didn't cause, right? You didn't cause it, not your fault. And you can't control it. It's not, it's not you who did it. It's like, it's, it's the predicament we're all in. This is the universal mind. This is the human experience. 
Okay, last quote by Maya Angelou. Hope and fear cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Hope and fear cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Invite one to stay. So let's just dedicate the merit that our practice tonight is not just for us, but for the benefit of all beings, beings that we know, beings we don't know, beings far, beings wide, beings seen, unseen, born, unborn, that really truly merit goodness, anything that's been cultivated here, be sent out. We can't, we can't keep it, we can't wrap it up in a box and a bow and take it with us, right? We just have to stay open and let what's in our heart, in our wise heart, in our mind, ripple out and serve, serve the greater good. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be at ease. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for your donna, your donations and gen- generosity. Thank you for anyone else who's going to help close down the place. Appreciate it. I'm getting sick, so I don't want to help you. It's great to see you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.